Welcome to the Art of Climate Dialogue Stories from Iowa, produced by myself, Vivian M. Cook, and the Eco Theater Lab. And welcome to today's conversation with artist, organizer, and founder and executive director of Great Plains Action Society, Sakawas Novus. Great Plains Action Society's Theory of Change. Great Plains Action Society addresses the trauma Indigenous peoples and our Earth have faced and works to prevent further colonial capitalist violence through education, direct action, cultural revival, mutual aid, and political change. We believe that Indigenous ideologies and practices are the antithesis of colonial capitalism, and we deploy these tools to fight and build on our vision, tools that are deeply embedded in a culture of resistance. Indigenous peoples in the U.S. and around the world have created a culture of resistance built on the front lines that is now a way of life. It can be found in our dancing, singing, clothing, art, and in our political motivations. When we imagine a strong political infrastructure, societies built on compassion, and a regenerative economy, we see a focus on relationships and community. Contrary to this country's notion of independent thought and action, we recognize the importance of relationships and community as the foundation for true democracy. Indigenous traditional societies and cultures are collectivist in nature, and we find this to be a critical way of being as we face down the climate emergency and increased societal polarization caused by the adversarial structures of our current governing systems. Radical individualism only benefits the wealthy. Unfortunately, we have a long struggle ahead of us, but we are up for the challenge. We have no choice. And so we organize from the bottom up through grassroots and frontline efforts and we are informed by the communities that we serve and are a part of. This work has made it very clear that mutual aid is necessary for achieving our decolonized vision as a radical love helps heal and activate more folks on the ground to get culturally, civically, and politically engaged. By empowering BIPOC, Two-Spirit, LGBTQIA, and disabled folks to get involved in change-making, we are building faith in disenfranchised communities that currently lack trust in governmental institutions. Only through mutual aid and community-based organizing will we be able to increase genuine interest in social and climate justice matters which affect everyday people. We also aim to get out the vote and increase political engagement as most of the big change we seek always comes down to legislation, even at the front lines. Addressing climate change is urgent, but in order to move toward action, we first have to find ways to talk about climate change with one another. The Art of Climate Dialogue, Stories from Iowa, is a podcast series featuring 13 conversations with artists, farmers, community-engaged researchers, and community organizers and activists who have all used arts and storytelling strategies to talk about climate change and agriculture. Through this podcast, they generously share these strategies so that listeners can implement them in their own communities. I'm Vivian, and I invite you to explore the art of climate dialogue with me. As we enter into these conversations around climate action, sustainable agriculture, and community-engaged arts in Iowa, the Eco Theater Lab and I want to first recognize that Indigenous nations have been leaders in such conversations for centuries and continue to be today. Iowa now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. Iowa is now situated on the homelands and trading routes of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk, Oto, Omaha, Ihonkdawa, and Santee, 
And because history is complex and time goes far back beyond memory, we also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forced removal that dispossess indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. And as a result, indigenous ecosystems within Iowa have suffered from extraction, degradation, and unsustainable agricultural practices, contributing to the ongoing climate crisis. Understanding and addressing these injustices is critical as we work toward climate dialogue, action, and justice in our communities. My thanks to podcast interviewees, Shelley Buffalo, enrolled member of the Meskwaki tribe, Lance Foster, enrolled member and tribal historian of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, and Sakawas Nobis, Plains Cree Soto of the George Gordon First Nation for their collaboration in developing this acknowledgement. Sakawas Nobis is Plains Cree Soto of the George Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan, Canada, and grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. At 19, she began her life's work of uplifting Indigenous voices when she got her first job at the New Brunswick Aboriginal People's Council in Fredericton, Canada. In 2015, she founded Great Plains Action Society as a way to increase Indigenous solidarity in Iowa City. It turned into a full-fledged organization during the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, which led her to start Little Creek Camp in February 2017. From August 2017 to September 2020, she worked for Seeding Sovereignty, where she organized at a national level. As her heart is with her people and the prairies, Sakawas returned to Great Plains Action Society, where she can work at a grassroots level and a fully Indigenous-led organization. Sakawas is also a speaker, writer, and artist. She believes that environmental and social justice work are inextricably linked, and change will only happen when we dismantle corrupt colonial capitalist systems and rebuild them with a decolonized worldview. She graduated from the University of Iowa in 2008 with a master's degree in religious studies with a focus on Native American religion and culture and a graduate minor in American Indian Native Studies. She fights for a better future for her two young children. Welcome, Sakawas. Thank you so much for joining the podcast series and for sharing your work with us today. Thank you for having me. So you just read an excerpt from Great Plains Action Society's Theory of Change. Can you tell us more about Great Plains Action Society, how it got started, and what your role is in the organization? Yeah, well, I'll start by introducing myself. Um, my name is Sakawa Snobis, and I'm Plains Cree Salto of the George Gordon First Nation. Uh, I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, not too far from there. I call it the resiest city in Canada. We have a super high concentration of natives uh, living there. That's all in Canada. And I've been living in uh, Iowa City for 17 years. I came here to get my PhD in uh, religious studies. And it turns out it's, uh, there wasn't quite as many resources here as I needed to do what I wanted. So I ended up doing my master's degree in religious studies with a focus on Native American religion and culture and getting a graduate minor in Native American studies as well. And, you know, throughout this process, uh, you know, I had sort of started building a life here 
with my ex-husband and, you know, had children and, you know, he had a job he really liked. So we, we ended up staying and I realized how lonely I was. You know, there just wasn't any like real concept. There's not like, there's not a large concentration of natives in Iowa city, though there is the native American student association at the time. It's, it was exceedingly small, like, you know, five or six people maybe, and also they were students, right? So, you know, I, you know, was older and graduated at that point and just feeling kind of isolated because I grew up, you know, with so many natives around me, you know, a native family. Um, I just felt like there needed to be more. Over the years, I uh, attempted to, you know, get folks together in Iowa City to start something, some kind of community organization or you know just something to have us be involved like beyond the university because honestly being within the confines of university systems was somewhat you know suffocating like it just you can't do a lot or say a lot and so yeah I attempted to have you know these gatherings and you know I did a few times you know have natives come to my house and talk about you know doing something but it was hard, um, you know, because people, it's a very transient place. So people were always coming and going. So, you know, I was having a hard time with that. But, you know, come 2016, when Standing Rock happened, all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, when I was going there uh, to help out, like people just wanted to start doing stuff with me. And that was really the beginning of when I finally was able to break through, if you will, you know, to get people's attention, to get um, more natives to want to, you know, do some stuff. And that's how Great Plains Action Society was formed. Um, it was, you know, formed out of the, the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa and at Standing Rock. And so I don't know if any of your listeners would know this, but I think it's a good point to make that 30% of that pipeline goes through Iowa. Mm -hmm. And the fight against the pipeline uh, started actually in Iowa in 2014. And so it was just like a time and place where people wanted to hear what Indigenous people have to say, which, as you know, has been hard for us as we face high rates of erasure, you know, tokenization and stereotyping. And this was a time where people really wanted to hear from us, like, and in a real way. And so, you know, that opportunity was a fantastic one for us, uh, for myself to build the organization. And now here we are six years later, and we have three full-time staff and uh, two part-time staff and three youth organizers. So, you know, I'd say that we're doing well. Yeah, well, I would say so as well. That's a lot in six years. And I know you've been doing incredible work like within Great Plains Action Society itself, but then also all of this coalition building that you're doing too, like bringing a lot of other organizations together and coalescing around around these really big challenges that we're facing in Iowa, but making sure that we're building community power to address those. So thank you. For all of the work that you've done. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome and thank you for supporting the work. Yes, yeah, so you've also discussed how Great Plains Action Society integrates art into everything y'all do and art is even mentioned in your theory of change. Can you tell us more about the role that art plays in your organizing efforts? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. In fact, I gave a presentation on that just a couple of days ago. I'm not even sure how to pronounce this and I know I'm going to get it wrong, but it's a, called a Pecha Kucha. It's a Japanese presentation style and you're supposed to show 20 slides and then you get 20 seconds per slide. It was for this national convening discussing CO2 pipelines, the new 
you know, greenwashing tactic that has been uplifted by, you know, the fossil fuel and the big ag industry. And so when asked to do this presentation, I thought, wow, that's, that's going to be hard. <laughs> you know, so my mind right away went to all the art that we've done. And it is so much. It was hard to just keep it down to 20 slides. And honestly, I had 21. Um, right. <laughs> because like, I just, I realized, you know, like that would be a great way to talk about what we have been doing to fight the CO2 pipelines, because of course a picture is worth a thousand words and there you go. That is why we do so much art, right? Art really does attract attention and it really displays a message in ways that, you know, speaking can't always do. You know, you can't always grab attention on an overpass or the side of a highway or like, you know, on a roadway trying to get people as they drive by by talking. Right. right. Uh, you can't always catch attention on 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 social media with words. Right. I mean, we know this like the world has changed drastically from, you know, reading to, you know, now visual communications. So, you know, communicating our message visually is just like we can't do without it. You know, mm -hmm. it's. It's absolutely necessary for the work we do. So in this presentation, I basically found all the pieces of art, you know, that we've been working with in the past year and a half as we fight these CO2 pipelines, plus other pieces of art from past, you know, campaigns and projects and events that also speak to this current fight and put it all together. And it did tell a really fantastic story of what we do. And, uh, you know, I, I just, after the presentation was over, received, you know, so, you know, many messages from people just saying, wow, you know, like, wow, how do we do that? How do we do this in Louisiana? Or, or like, that was the best presentation of the day. That was the most uplifting presentation of the day. Wow. Um, that was very visually satisfying. Like, I feel good looking at that, you know. Also, because I could just talk about the piece, you know, very briefly, because the piece itself told the story, I could get a lot of information out, like, mm -hmm. you know, um, because I had both the art and, you know, my words, like, combined. So, you know, that just talking about like, doing this presentation really does, I hope, describe to you why we put so much effort into art. Definitely. The other reason we do put a lot of effort into art, I think, is culture. It's a culturally based initiative for us because, you know, when you look at the history of indigenous resistance back to the Red Power movement, for instance, right? But even before that, if you want to look at, you know, the ghost dance or just like us dressing in our regalia and, you know, carrying out our religious practices and whatever, I mean, like, it's very visual, right? It's very much based upon, like, our cultural beliefs and traditions. Like, they're not hidden. Like, you can't hide what we're doing with how we're, you know, how we're going to be dressed if we're going to do it traditionally, right? So, right. you know, there's always been this resistance through, you know, culture, which, you know, can also fall into the realm of, like, what you would consider art, but not necessarily art, like, in the way that, you know, you might imagine it, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, art and craft, right, as right. well. And so, you know, since the Red Power Movement in particular, though, like, you know, like, visual art, you know, drawn art, that sort of art has become really integral to our resistance. 
Also, there's the, the art of music, which I talked about briefly in our theory of change. You know, even those songs, those like, you know, war songs, if you will, in a way, uh, or songs of resistance have become, you know, a part of what we do and how we do things. But, you know, like, I just feel like living and working within Indigenous spaces, you just, you always see this art. And I honestly believe that Indigenous peoples are just so good at it. Just like we have such amazing artists visual artists, crafters, you know, singers, drummers. It's just, it's, it's just inherent to us and our culture. Thank you so much for sharing about the presentation that you gave and all of the different ways that y'all are integrating art, not only into your organizing efforts, but it also sounds like into the community building efforts and in how to make sure people are finding space to come together, which you talked about at the beginning is part of the impetus for even creating Great Plains Action Society in the first place. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different kinds of artwork that you've used? So I know you've mentioned to me like art builds as a way to create community as you're preparing for organizing efforts, that you've used it, yeah, in social media campaigns Mm -hmm. and protests. You've done installation artwork, kind of massive pieces on wagons and murals and things like that. (laughs) Could you just give us a sense of the variety of different kinds Mm -hmm. of art that y'all use? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I would like to say that Great Plains Action Society, we are, I would call us the the brokers. <laughs> I don't know if that's the correct term, but the brokers of the art, right? So uh-huh. <laughs> like we <laughs> like we're, you know, creating spaces and opportunities for the, you know, the art to come alive, right? So mm-hmm. like we make a lot of our art, but also we put opportunities together so other folks can contribute to the art. So I guess you could call us a middle person. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, the different types of art we do. There's our, you know, digital art, which is like our graphics to advertise a current campaign, initiative, event, whatever, you know, we're doing. And then there's, you know, graphics to relate to different issues, right? And I do most of those for the organization, Trish also does, you know, quite a few. And then I've been teaching our youth over the years to do them as well, which has really been great because I love I love the learning curve. Like I love to see them, yeah. you know, start from a certain place and get somewhere else. They're truly, I mean, it is an art. It is an art to make graphics, mm-hmm. uh, to advertise, you know, different things that you're trying to get across, to uplift, you know, different issues and such. Because there's a big difference between something like, um, I don't know, like how things used to be done back in the day with, what was it called? It was in Word. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Just creating like, graphics in Word. Yeah, you know, like that. What was it called? It was a it was a program, but you know, like, oh, it was I just no like idea. very, very, like yeah, very, like just not not good, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> compared to what we can do now, with amazing platforms like Photoshop and you know, mm-hmm. and Canva, I love Canva for that reason. It makes it so accessible. Right. Anybody can be like a graphic designer with Canva, you know, and I really love that. You know, there's that aspect of our work. 
And then, you know, there's also the, the digital aspect of our work that we print, right? So we're kind of like uh, famous for our posters, I guess, uh, if yes. you will. <laughs> yeah, we make a lot of 11 by 17 posters that we print out that we just give out for free. Like, you know, we never charge for them. And I mean, we've probably given out like a couple thousand at this point very different pieces, you know, pieces that talk about like land back and land sovereignty, pieces for our missing and murdered indigenous relatives crisis, pieces that depict the CO2 pipelines fight, saying no to CO2 pipelines. And then just, I would call these pieces more like protest pieces. Mm -hmm. So we'll just make, you know, like basic posters that have a message on them, like defend land and body sovereignty, which we came out with during the reproductive liberation crisis that we're facing. Or pieces that say, you know, Kim Reynolds work for the people and and the fascism, you know, Mm -hmm. so you can bring that to a CO2 pipeline protest or uh, Bruce Rastetter bankrolls climate disaster. Uh, So there's like basic pieces as well. And we'll just hand those out. And those are just meant to be used in the moment. A lot of the time they get kind of crumpled up, you know, but they're really great for those reasons. Sometimes we staple them onto small sticks so people can hold them up high. And then like the other posters are meant for people to take home. They're beautiful pieces, you know, that we've put a lot of time and effort into that we've either commissioned an artist to make like Moselle Singh or Sunrose Ironshell or that I've made for whatever it is that we're working on. So it sounds like you're not only creating spaces for additional artists to come join you and develop pieces, but then you're sharing those pieces with people who aren't creating the artwork, but then can take it and either use it in protest or take it with them to share with other people. And then it kind of has these ripple effects. That's really Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's really funny because, you know, I'll be on Zoom sometimes and I just like, I see the posters up on people's walls. (laughs) I, I love it. So, you know, there's that aspect of the work. And then you mentioned art builds. Yes, we've helped, you know, organize quite a few of those over the years. We usually have those organized before we have a protest or some kind of action. And then people can come out and make all sorts of stuff, you know, like whatever it is they want to make, we help facilitate that. But then often as well, we also have like a, I guess you could say a central part of it as well. Like back in November, we uh, were protesting the CCS conference where pro-CO2 pipeline folks had come together for an annual event. And I worked with Moselle Singh to take one of her pieces that she had made as a poster to translate it into something that could be screen printed. So like more simple, you know, like Mm -hmm. less detail, uh, which then I brought to David Solnit, who's a really famous movement artist uh, in the country Mm -hmm. and like connected these two together so they could make sure that like it was like how he would want it in order to screen print it. And then he took two of her pieces, he screen printed them. And he made about 50 of each and also made a a patch as well out of one of them so that some people could pin them on their backs. You know, that's often what they do or on their bags or wherever. Right. And then I went, I happened to be in, in Oakland at the time for a conference and he asked me to come and speak, which I, I did. And then, uh, at that time, like they presented us with all these beautiful pieces of art that they had created on fabric, which then I brought back 
to, you know, Iowa City, and then Mahmoud Fatil, uh, our land defense director, and I spent uh, quite a while putting the larger, you know, banners up or like signs, I think they're about like three feet by two feet wide, onto wood frames with like eight foot poles, you know, so that people mm-hmm. can carry them. Um, and there's a picture that I sent you of that. And so, so people could carry those around. They're very effective, like they're very beautiful, they're eye-catching. And so we have a lot of those now. And then we have all these patches, like hundreds of these patches that we give out to folks. And then they can color them as if, you know, as well. Um, And so, yeah, so that's an art build that was part of the art build, (laughs) you know, for this event. And it was bridging California all the way to Iowa. It was, yeah. And and it's really good because California plays a huge role in the CO2 pipeline fight because their state is so pro-CO2 mitigation, as they call it, or, you know, CCS, because mm-hmm. it then satisfies the requirements of their gas standards, right? But they don't seem to care that Iowa and these other states are going to be sacrifice zones for that. So, yeah, it was good to have that happen now we have all this art here and we, you know, we deploy it when we need to. And another aspect of the work is, is banner art. So mm-hmm. banners are really important, you know, when you carry them at the front of a march or to hang them places, you know, just or just to have them out, uh, even in like, you know, inside events, just so you can get good photo opportunities so that you can get a message across. You know, not everything needs media attention. You know, a lot of our mutual aid efforts, we don't really need media attention for that. We're not interested in that. But when it comes to issues like this, where we're really trying to get the nation to change its mind on something so egregious, right? We, you do want that attention. The whole point is to try and get media to get the, the information out there to the people. And these banners really help. So we have a lot of beautiful banners. We do have like no CO2 banners that like one of them was made by David Solnit as well. It's a beautiful green and yellow one. We have one that was made by Molly Free, who's a, a local artist in Des Moines. We have one made by Remy Fredenberg, an indigenous artist. I mean, actually, we made it, we made it together, him and I. It's, it says colonial capitalism equals seventh generation genocide. And we have a beautiful one that I designed with Cree motifs on the bottom of it that says decolonized farming, you know, no GMOs, no CAFOs, mm-hmm. and no big egg. I made that with the help of James Hill, who's a Potawatomi water protector that's living up at the Line 3 area right now. Also, like, there's the huge mural that we made. That's more of an installation piece, which we made during the First Nation Farmer Climate March. And that was made with about 10 of us natives uh, over the period of eight days. I designed the piece and then, like, we all colored it in over that period of time and it's large it's geez it must be 12 plus 8 feet or 6 feet must be about must be about 18 feet wide by 12 feet high yeah and so that we you know we hung up on the side on the side of a semi-trailer at the very end uh, of our march and then had our big event there with that as the backdrop and we still have that piece and we still use it we take it out and use it every once in a while but the pictures of it have been used a lot on social media as well. And yeah, we we have done art installations, you know, we've we've helped that artist I mentioned earlier who made the, helped me make that banner, Remy Fredenberg. Um I've helped him make a a large wagon uh that says colonialism on it 
and it has all these arrows of decolonization that are piercing it with different sayings on them. Um, they're, they're large 10 foot, you know, six by six inch PVC pipes painted black with feathers on the, and the ends of them. And they say language, culture, the matriarchy, land back, like all these things they say on the feathers. And then that the whole, the wagon is like 12 feet long. I mean, it's large. It's, it's like a, it's like a life-size, you know, colonial wagon and uh, has real wheels on it. And it's pulled usually because we've done this installation three times. <laughs> So it's uh, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, the last time we when we made it in Iowa, it was pulled by the four uh, <laughs> horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, <laughs> dressed yeah. in like various like uh, outfits, like um, war. So we had somebody dressed up in a you know military outfit, and the, we had somebody dressed as the Pope. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't remember the other two, honestly, right now. I think there was a pilgrim. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. there was a pilgrim. <laughs> yeah. And so, oh, and then a business person. Yeah, so they pulled that wagon. And then after it was done, we took it to another action to demand uh, abolishing monuments to white supremacy in Iowa. And then when it was done there, we took it to uh, a friend's private field on his land and we burned it wow. <laughs> so yeah we actually uh yeah we we just set it on fire and filmed it and uh burned it to the ground and it was a really great bonfire yeah so i would imagine it really yeah. it really epitomized like the term wagon burner yeah uh, which is what we wanted so um, and that and that in and of itself like creating that piece probably getting a lot of attention from it because there are these very it sounds like with all the pieces y'all have created there's these very clear messages like keywords key phrases that you want people to remember and walk away with and then this artwork that's either gorgeous like you were talking about with like the cream motifs and everything or just incredibly striking if you have these (laughs) four horsemen of the apocalypse right that people see it, they're going to walk away with something regardless. And then even burning it at the end is kind of this act of it's community art. building and coming together. Right. Yes. It's, it's, it's art. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's also wearable art. So we make a lot of shirts. Um, mm-hmm. We have a shirt right now that's really popular that is using the same words as that poster I was talking about, Defend Land and Body Sovereignty. Mm-hmm. People really like that that T-shirt. I mean, I'm sure I'm missing stuff. Like I said, there's also, uh, you know, we bring a lot of people in to sing and, and drum, you know, for various events and to dance. Um, we had a mini powwow, for instance, like on the lawn of the Capitol a couple of years ago in 2020. So, you know, there's always there's always like some kind of art as part of what we do. And I feel like in terms of the organizations in Iowa, I feel like we, we truly are up there in terms of like who's making art and using art to get a message across like we're definitely one of the organizations that is really using that as a tool absolutely and like you said i mean i've seen plenty of articles that come out about great plains action society's work and it is it's those banners that are on the front page of those articles and it draws you to it and it helps communicate a message very effectively i think in that it's succinct but also you can't kind of get it out of your head right and and I know we saw each other at the Practical Farmers of Iowa conference a couple of weeks ago and 
you know, everyone was coming by your table because you had all of this, you had artwork, you had all these posters that you were handing out and people could take with them and think about what was on them and share them and hang them up behind their Zoom meetings or whatever. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It was, you know, like we, we had a piece on there by Moselle Singh that says, um, end ethanol. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, ethanol is bleeding Iowa dry. It's a really, really poignant piece. And, you know, I, I was like kind of excited to have that one up because I like art also creates controversy too. Right. And so like, (laughs) I can't help that there's a part of me that, you know, wants that to happen because, you know, I'm trying to get people's attention, um, so that they can think about their choices. Right. And ethanol is such a, it's so ingrained in Iowa in the Iowa economy and culture, you know, to talk against it is, you know, very faux pas in a way in Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, uh, circles. So even at that particular conference, which is more, you know, liberal, you know, I was just really happy to have that there. And it was such a talking piece. I couldn't believe it. So many people came by and were like, I'm so glad to see this. I'm so glad because they don't see that. You don't see that anywhere because people are too scared to say it, right? And that's probably because, you know, they are white and they are, you know, part of those, you know, circles, their family, their friends, their communities. Um, And if you say that, you know, then you're a bad person. You're against farmers. You're against the economy. You're against, you know, like good old family farms, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, we can say that because we're indigenous and, you know, we don't have a stake in that game, I guess you could say, right? Like, we care about the land. We care about, you know, sacred sites. We care about land back. We care about the future of, you know, our world and like, you know, the climate crisis. I mean, that's that's what we care about. So mm-hmm. we're not scared to say, you know, what we think is an issue. So that piece, um, like I said, brought some really great comments and also some bad looks. But, you know, it is what it is. And I'm glad we had it there. Yeah. And like you said, maybe art can create controversy because it is it can be very direct in a very obvious way about what are what are these key messages and takeaways but that controversy does maybe open the door for conversation like if you're yeah we have to figure out a way to talk about controversial unfortunately it can be divisive too Mm -hmm. um because you know for instance when we were having putting on that event on november 9th we had made these really nice posters from Moselle Singh's pieces again, like the ones that I was talking about earlier. And somebody within the community that we don't know who, right? Like they decided to, like they really were, I guess, inspired by it. And so they wheat pasted a bunch of these posters like all over Des Moines, not all over, but like, I think it was the East Village. And wheat pasting is something that can come off really easy with some warm water. But the, I guess, I don't know what her position is in the Sierra Club, but like one of the higher ups in the Sierra Club, Iowa chapter, got word that I guess a couple of business owners were upset because they were scared that they were, you know, it was like, they, they were saying it was a adhe- like industrial adhesive that had been used. And so um, basically she was very upset with us, but, you know, we we can't help that somebody went and used that, right, in mm-hmm. that way. But also, it goes to show you, like, how some organizations stand and, like, where their loyalties actually lie. They're right. more loyal to 
the status quo, to the middle ground, to placating, you know, folks than they are to their actual mission, which is supposed to be the climate and the environment, which is the Sierra Club's, you know, supposed mission. But, you know, it, it was easily mitigated. I guess somebody went and showed them, like, you can take this off very easy. But, um, you know, I, I guess it can cause controversy. It can, it can cause, it can cause division. It can, that controversy can also cause division. It can also, you know, uh, bring people together. So, mm-hmm. you know, other folks banded together over this small issue. And so it was, it's interesting. That is, yeah, yeah that is a very interesting example of that, <laughs> like finding that balance and being okay with, with knowing that there's gonna have to be some hard conversations because we're gonna put these conversations out into public, yeah, whether I, that's on the I side mean, of a like, building or elsewhere. <laughs> you know, the people that did this, I like, I don't know who they are, but they did it in a really gentrified area. And yeah. so maybe they were trying to get a message across. Like, right, right. You know, right. like you took away like, you know, a lot from people. And so here we are just putting this little thing up just as a reminder that you're not you know, you, you are still prone to living in a world where other people exist and it's, you know, because it, gentrification almost like seems like it becomes almost like a gated community, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just like a place where it just feels like unattainable, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't afford things there, so you don't go there, you know, like, so I just, you know, what maybe that's what they were trying to get across as well. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would think, but yeah. Definitely. I actually want to, I want to talk more about this. You've, you've mentioned kind of a couple of ideas about how it's hard to talk about topics like ethanol and, and other agricultural challenges that we're facing in Iowa. So in your experience, what are some barriers to talking specifically about climate change and justice in Iowa? That is such an agricultural heavy state. Absolutely. I mean, like, look at the state we're living in. Look at the government that we have, right? I mean, that, that's a huge barrier because you can't talk about it, you know, at a legislative level, bypassing bills or even having conversations like in the Senate or House or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because they, you know, there's no interest there. So, you know, right off the bat, there's there's that that predicament. There's the issue of this state being, you know, filled with, like, uh, conservatives some of them white supremacists, some, you know, some of them Trump people, and some of them even QAnon people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, these landowners that um, the Sierra Club has been organizing to, you know, resist, you know, this eminent domain issue with the pipeline going through their lands, or the pipelines, excuse me, I think there's about 1200 of them, you know, like we've been told, by them, by the Sierra Club, like that we can't talk about climate to these people. We can't talk about ethanol. Ethanol is off limits, you know. And of course, indigenous issues like land back and sacred sites, you know, are not of any interest, right? And we've basically been told in not so many words, like, you know, you're going to scare them off, right? Like, so, you know, that's definitely a barrier, but also not a barrier because, it's really hard for us to work with these kinds of folks with these mentalities anyway, because, you know, why, why, honestly, when I think about it, why are we helping them, you know, protect their land Mm -hmm. from eminent domain abuse, right? Like it's stolen anyway. 
And that's a conversation that I would like to have more often. But unfortunately, like when we do, or when I do, because I'm the one that seems to push the envelope most (laughs) in our organization, which makes sense as I'm the executive director, right? I find that, you know, I get told that I'm being too divisive, you know, that I'm, you know, I'm trying to build bridges, not burn them. But, you know, I'm not trying to burn any bridges at all. I'm, I'm trying to, like finally allow for like honest conversation that does not include whitewashing right and like somebody has to take that first step right and yeah it might turn off some people initially but like maybe it will activate some folks to be you know more interested maybe some folks will take notice and want to like look further into this or just have a conversation about it you know and it could just even change their mind just the slightest and I think that's pretty cool so we have, though, still focused the majority of our efforts in this fight on, like, environmental justice aspects of this. So the missing and murdered Indigenous relatives crisis, because, you know, these pipelines will bring man camps in, you know, brown and black communities who aren't being, who aren't uh, being communicated with by, the, you know, the Sierra Club, you know, because they're working on the landowners who are, you know, 99.5% white, right? Um, mm-hmm. And because you know, 98% of agricultural land is owned by white folks in this country, and most land anyway is owned by white folks, right? And, and we're in Iowa, so that means that like it's mostly white folks that are dealing with this eminent domain issue. And so, you know, we've been focusing on people that don't own land, you know, black and brown folks uh, who are in communities where these pipelines are going through or by and, you know, trying to get their attention on this and trying to communicate this information to them. In fact, we were just at the Sisseton Wapiton Reservation for a spiritual law meeting, and we discussed, you know, to a bunch of Dakota and Lakota tribes, like, we discussed with them these pipelines and how it's going to be coming through their lands, and so we we're very happy to get that information out to them. Like, we, we, you know, after that, you know, we're fine. Like, all we want to do is get the information to them, right. and then, you know, they can decide what to do. Um, and then, you know, we just spoke to the Omaha Nation as well about that. And we've been speaking to the Winnebago Nation as well, who has asked for an environmental impact study from the IUB, but then was denied. But still, that helps, you know. And so, yeah, that's what we've been doing, essentially, just doing our best to, you know, communicate this information with brown and black folks, uh, making sure that, you know, just because you don't own land uh, doesn't mean you don't get a voice, you know, making sure that that is like our motto, you know, and getting the message across in that way. Because, you know, the issue of eminent domain and these pipelines affects every single person in the state, right? It doesn't just affect the people who have the land that it's going through. And when you think about it, some of these landowners might own 100 acres or more, right? And they might live on the complete opposite end of their land where this pipeline is going. But right beside that pipeline might be a housing division or might be, you know, like a school or like a community where people who don't own land are are situated, right? So the landowner, in the end, like, sure, like, they might be mad because they're NIMBY folks, like, not in my backyard folks, right? They might be like, okay, well, I don't want this pipeline going through my land just because it's my land, right? Right. Um, because, like, the idea of sharing in this colonial capitalist society is, like, beyond, like, their understanding. Uh, don't tread on me mentality is, like, very, like, you know, prevalent, 
I would say not just in these conservative communities, but even in these liberal communities. Like, I feel like they don't say don't tread on me, but I feel like they believe it. Right, right. <laughs> right. And so it might not affect them at all. It might just be that the pipeline's going through a piece of their land. Maybe it'll take away, it'll decrease like uh, some harvest productivity. But yeah, like I said, it's these communities that also need to be informed where, you know, we do know that these pipelines are actually going by some schools. Definitely. So you're focused on informing members of our community about what's Mm -hmm. happening with the pipelines, making sure people know how it's affecting them, that it's not just affecting landowners, that it's affecting most everyone in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about these barriers to discussing climate change and justice and how that's affected the pipelines and everything. So how do the artistic strategies that y'all use help facilitate that dialogue about climate change and justice? Well, again, you know, again, it goes back to catching people's attention. So we get a lot of news coverage so more people can learn. And that's, that's number one, I think. And the number two is it's just, it's inviting. I feel like, you know, art can be very inviting and it can really also affect people emotionally. So there's that as well. And yeah, I, I think that's what it what it does. That's great. And you also, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you are also an artist yourself, a writer, a visual artist. And then mm-hmm. you've talked about how you're an arts event organizer and kind of a catalyst. So as a visual artist, you've created your own digital and non-digital works that are often influenced, like you talked about earlier, by traditional Korean Ojibwe artistic styles. Can you tell us a little bit more about your own practice as a visual artist and how this practice connects to your climate activism? Yeah, I mean, I just, it just, I think it has provided somewhat of a, a brand for us. If that's, I don't know if that's a good term for a, a nonprofit, but like, you know, just something, I guess, consistency, consistency, right? because I make so many of our graphics, you know, like you can kind of see a consistency to who we are. Right. If you go on our Instagram page, for instance, like, you know, you can tell that maybe it's the same artist making a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then in terms of my visual uh, well, it's all visual. Uh, my uh, drawn art. What do you call that? Mm-hmm. Drawn art, mm-hmm. painted art. I've used some pieces of, of that I've made in the past, you know, to help with what we do. So, you know, that big, huge mural I was talking about earlier, I used a crane that I had drawn in the past, you know, to make that piece. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just, I don't know. And then, And then, of course, you know, it's not just me, right? Like, it's, you know, all these other artists, like, you know, Trisha, you know, makes graphics as well. And some of her art is just, some of her graphics are just so beautiful. And you can see how she has grown over time as well in, like, learning how to do this work. Because it's all grassroots, right? Um, But it's all from an Indigenous perspective. And I think that's what's important. It's, it's all, it's all Indigenous made. In terms of Indigenous artists creating art to depict what was and what should be. I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention Lance Foster, the tribal historian of the Iowa of Kansas and Nebraska and the original inhabitants of 
so much of Iowa, which, you know, the state is named after. And he has written books on Iowa history from an indigenous perspective and been a huge mentor to many of us younger indigenous folks that are working to keep Iowa's land safe and the people safe. And there's this one piece that he's done. I just call it Corn Woman. It's a corn maiden, I guess, if you will, you know, working the ground with a skirt made of corn. And it's it's really amazing to me. I love to use that piece because he's given me permission to use it in different contexts to uplift, like not not only his work, but also the ideology behind it, you know, like what it depicts. We've actually talked a lot about getting that particular piece made into a statue and put on the Iowa Capitol complex grounds in place of other uh, racist and white supremacist statues that are there. So I would absolutely love to see that happen one day. And I am going to continue to work on that. I've talked about this with some other interviewees as well, this idea of changing the agricultural, climate, economic, social narratives that we're amplifying and that art is a way to share and amplify different narratives that we need to be telling. So you're talking about making sure that like your stories are being told through this consistent platform, whether that's social media or whether that's all of these protests and then that gets into media and then other Mm -hmm. people see it and they're taking posters and it's yeah that there are these ripple effects it sounds like from the work that you're doing yeah I guess that goes without saying like it just like Mm -hmm. thank you for you know I mean it's just so integral to what I'm doing like I you're right it just like it helps provide the alternative message that we're trying to get across Mm -hmm. I guess there's the art of writing as well which I haven't even talked about you know like we do so much writing you know, there's the zine that's really popular that I wrote a few years ago, our perspective on, you know, Big Ag in Iowa, and then the beautiful art that Moselle made for the cover, um, yes. you know, the writing that Jessica Engelking does for our letter writing campaign, Trish as well, the, you know, the inter- you know the youth interns, you know, Ronnie has done some beautiful writing for our Truthsgiving website, our Truthsgiving zine, you know, then we have guest writers as well, you know, on our blog. So, you know, writing as well is a is is a art form and that uh, has also been exceedingly integral, exceedingly integral into like what we do. Yeah, and it sounds like figuring out kind of who who in your community wants to tell their stories in different ways, whether that's visual artwork or whether that's writing through a zine or writing for social media or writing articles or whatever that might be and figuring out ways how to provide platforms yeah. to make that happen and to, and to let people share that story in the way that they know how to tell stories because everybody does mm-hmm. have a way that they that they communicate. You've talked about your artistic practice as healing as well and a way to connect you with your ancestors and history. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, I started to do, you know, Cree Ojibwe style art when I was just uh, like 12 years old, I believe I was introduced to it by a teacher at school when we were on a canoe trip, actually. And one of the pieces that I made actually won an award from the Governor General of Canada and was put into this book. And so it was kind of a big deal. 
<laughs> and I just That's kept, wonderful. Yeah, I just kept drawing in that way and learning of that way, you know, by reading about it and like looking at other artists from the past, like Norval Morisot, who was an inspiration to me. And that's my style of art. And, you know, I, it really, you know, it really does speak to me and speak through me. My ancestors, I feel, always speak through me with all, all that we do um, at Great Plains Action Society. I don't really consider this a job, you know, like I consider it like a passion, like it's uh, my life's motivation. It's my goal to, you know, just try to get Indigenous perspectives out there and make some change you know, to this colonial capitalist society so that we can, you know, do better and live better lives. Like the lives that we're living are not, are not, um, are not very, there's not a lot of compassion in this society that we live in. And, you know, I really want that to change. I want us to have, you know, an an economy built on compassion, like a regenerative economy that uh, relies on traditional ecological knowledge to make decisions, you know, rather than this idea that you can just keep taking whatever you want. So, you know, my art does definitely reflect that passion and desire and um, what I feel like my ancestors have told me to do. That's really beautiful to think about. And also that you talked about starting this kind of artwork really young. And then earlier you mentioned that you love sharing these artistic practices with the young people in your organization and your community too and inviting them into this process that it is kind of cyclical that you felt like it was an integral part of your growing up and now you're you're helping pass that on to to other young people who are joining your efforts now yeah I hope so I hope so I see I see it happening I hope it keeps happening Yeah, and earlier you talked about Great Plains Action Society and you as as a middle person. I think you said you're, yeah. you're like you're you're creating opportunities for people. And in prior conversations that we've had, you've also talked about as that you're like a facilitator and a catalyst for yeah. artistic opportunities and organizing. That you bring other artists into this work, you fundraise in order to pay them, you bridge the art with political action and community building. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Climate Justice Summit you organized with the Buffalo Rebellion last year and and kind of what your role was as this catalyst Mm -hmm. in bringing that event together. Well, none of the folks that um, I was working with had ever done something like this. I think I was the only one that ever had organized something like this big. And so, you know, I was mentoring a lot of folks so they, you know, they would also learn how to do it, which was really great. And, you know, those folks are younger folks and and also like black folks and migrant and Latino Latino folks so you know it was really great to be able to do this with them and one of the things like right away of course that always comes to my mind is like we have to have some art for this event and so uh, right away I contacted Sunrose Ironshell and asked if she could create a piece for us um, and we talked about it, we brainstormed for a while and came up with this idea of a, a buffalo, you know, stamping on a tractor. And so she went to work on that. And, oh, and I asked her to use the word rematriate. And she went to mm-hmm. work on that and she created this beautiful piece that like is just really stunning. And that became sort of like a, our Buffalo Rebellion uh, piece, I guess, if you will, right? Like not just for the summit, but just to, you know, to show in general, like what we're, you know, doing because Iowa 
is the most biologically colonized state in the country, and it's because of farming, mm-hmm. right? Because of because of colonial capitalist farming practices. And that's not just like big ag, right? Like that's not just like these like big industries. It's also like small farms that carry out these practices. Right. So, you know, that that was created for that conference or, or maybe even beforehand, I can't remember. And then I contacted Moselle Singh to see if she could create us like a, a poster. And then from that poster, I I realized, hey, like, could we have, we, maybe we can have some t-shirts. So I asked the group if we had money for t-shirts and luckily we did. So then we got, you know, like about a hundred t-shirts printed, I think 120 actually, so that we could give them to every attendee that showed up. And then, you know, all of the members of the Buffalo Rebellion group. So like now we see these t-shirts all over the place. They're just so beautiful and people love them. So um, mm-hmm. they have just the most beautiful art on them. Um, Moselle well, Singh really does create like stunning pieces and I really do hope to see her flourish more as a movement artist. Uh, also Sunrose, both of them. I hope to see them both flourish more as movement artists. Yes, and for our listeners, Moselle is also one of the interviewees on this podcast series, so you'll have to check out her episode as well. Where she'll talk about some of the artwork that she's created with Great Plains Action Society and Buffalo Rebellion. And thank you for sharing about that event and kind of how you pulled arts and storytelling strategies into building the event and bringing people together. And it sounds like it goes back to that idea you talked about earlier, where you said there's this consistency in the messaging of Great Plains Action Society because you use this artwork, because you're using artwork from yourself and a variety of artists that are kind of you you continue to create artwork. So we see this thread that pulls everything together. And it sounds like y'all have done that with Buffalo Rebellion too, that it's a coalition of a bunch of different organizations, but that as a catalyst kind of bringing those organizations together, you seem to have emphasized the importance of figuring out, okay, what what is the image and what are the words that are going to pull all of these organizations together into into our organizing efforts. So if that's rematriate, that's kind of these big words and this idea of bringing buffalo back and land back and how that's connected to farming now. I believe on the t-shirt. Yeah. And I believe on the t-shirt, it says diversity, not uniformity. So, you know, that's really cool too. Yeah. 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 I think maybe Marcel and I talked a little bit about that and how that, (laughs) that idea refers to a lot of different things in Iowa that we're not, we're talking about land and people and ideas and and how do we like you said earlier create space to be honest Mm -hmm. and have honest conversations about what's happening so that we can move forward yeah much of the artwork of great plains action society is what you've referred to as resistance art which is integrated into your political advocacy work as we've heard Mm -hmm. in your theory of change you say most of the big change we seek always comes down to legislation what role do you think arts and storytelling has played in your own work pushing for climate policy in particular? We just show up at the Capitol with it. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> I'm trying on the news. I yeah. Guess, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We often show up at the Capitol with a lot of art, you know, like all that art I was talking about earlier has all ended up at the Capitol at some point. <laughs> so, um, you know, I guess you could call that lobbying. 
just we get the, the attention of legislators as you know they're in session coming out of session and we often see them poking their head over the railings and watching us you know at our events there and us speaking and then they see the art you know and hopefully that affects them that it draws attention yeah. to what you're doing it does tell a story and it sounds like too if you you have all of all of these different screen prints that then you can create multiples of and hand out to people so that everyone who shows up at the Capitol also can be holding a piece of art. Yeah. I, that, I like, unifies. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of Jeff Taylor, who recently wrote like the legislation or oh, last year wrote legislation to close loopholes in eminent domain, who's a Republican, right? But who I think does not like, you know, Kim Reynolds. <laughs> and how like both times that we've been there with art, He's come and taken every one of our signs. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so like he definitely agrees, you know. Um, well, yeah, and that goes I mean the big question that we're kind of trying to explore in this podcast series is how does and can art be used to start conversations? And maybe it's just as simple as you have this beautiful artwork out and then someone you don't expect goes, "Wow." those couple of words and phrases I agree <laughs> yes, with and yeah. that art is beautiful so I'm going to take it and like think on that more it, it was big. it was interesting yeah we actually um were having a conversation with him like a, a private con- like the group of us with him like that we're putting this you know well I we weren't working on the legislation specifically but we were helping with the event to you know get the word out food and water watch put that legislation together but um we did have that one poster there which is very bright. It's like a peacock, right? It's like bright blue and it says Kim Reynolds in bright pink. And it says, you know, stop with the fascism and work for the people in like bright yellow. And then it says no CO2 pipelines and bright green, right? So it's just like super mm-hmm. bright. And uh, he took all the posters except for that one. He's like, yeah, I don't know if I can take that one, but I could just see the <laughs> right, smile on his right. face. Like, <laughs> um, you know. But yeah, so, you know, we even have a picture of him holding one of the posters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really, it's really cool. I mean, it shows you that, you know, maybe we can have these conversations, that we can work across the table, even though it feels so impossible in Iowa sometimes, you know, like this gives you a tiny bit of hope. However, it is a really special situation where there are those of us that want to stop the pipeline simply because it's a bad idea like for the climate and for the land and for the people, the health and safety of the people. And that there and there's those that just want to stop it because they don't believe in uh, the abuse of eminent domain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it sort of feels uplifting at times to think that we can all work together, but you know, we do know that in the end, like people are, you know, coming to address this issue basically because of very different reasonings. Right. So, right. yeah, <laughs> but with but through that, we hope that we can create some good relationships that maybe in the in the future could be useful. Absolutely. And like you said, yeah, figuring out ways to invite a conversation, even if we're not all on the same page about what exactly it is that we value. Yeah. Hopefully starting to make pathways where we can talk about what we value. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Which seems very hard to do as well. Yes, it is. <laughs> we can't seem to get to that point to talk about what it is we value and how that might align in more ways than we think. Like, don't get me, like, twisted, right? Like, I, I know that, like, there's not, like, a lot of hope in Iowa 
to get the things done that we want to get done. Mm-hmm. But like if we didn't have a voice at all, that would be worse. Like so like right. we work basically just so that people can see and hear the alternative. Right. And so that other people who maybe don't feel like they have a voice, you talked about this in the theory of change too. If you see people doing this work and showing up and amplifying these narratives, then there's a lot of power in in realizing you're not alone if that yeah. if that work is being amplified, if those stories are being amplified, and then you say, Oh, maybe I can at least get connected or build relationships or yeah. be a part of this movement in some way. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing so much about the wonderful work you do. I know we could probably talk for a very long time about all of the different projects y'all have done. So I hope listeners check out Great Plains Action Society's website. There's lots of information just on the web, like we talked about earlier, with lots of articles and social media and everything about the protests y'all have done, the organizing that you've initiated, how you've been catalysts in the state and also throughout the Midwest and all the way across to California, as we heard. So (laughs) you're doing really amazing work. And thanks for sharing that. As we wrap up, um, I want to ask you, what are the three key ideas that you want listeners to understand about your work at the intersection of arts and climate dialogue? Art is really important for messaging when you're trying to make change because it can tell a story with one quick glimpse, you know, and in this this time that we live in now, you know, that's, that's very important, uh, especially because social media has become, you know, the way we get messaging across a lot of the time. So it has to be visual in order to catch people's attention and then they, you know, to hopefully read more about it. The second thing would be that art is cultural. Um, There's a cultural context to it for us as Indigenous peoples and that we use it to uplift our culture and empower ourselves to uh, revive our culture. I guess the third thing would be that it creates community. You know, it involves so many different people to create the art. I'd like to use the example of a piece that uh, Christy Belcourt made, who's an Anishinaabe artist. She made a buffalo a while back, just a very simple outline of a buffalo with a heart in it. And she said, anybody can use this piece. You don't have to use my permission. You don't have to, like, use my name, right? Like, just use it. So it's out there for the world, and it was made during the Standing Rock movement. And when we were putting together our CO2 pipeline images that David Solnit was going to print for us, he, he took that buffalo and put it on a little graphic that, you know, said no CO2 pipelines, right? And, you know, I was like, that's great. I love it. But we're trying to, you know, do something with Iowa artists. So I asked, you know, Moselle then to do something with buffalo. So then she created a piece with buffaloes. But because I had that piece made and shown it to the Buffalo Rebellion group, one of the Buffalo Rebellion members, they decided to take that buffalo 
and make like big white cutouts of it, like cardboard yeah. cutouts and put it on sticks, right? And then they took that piece, you know, to the event. And then Mary Krebs, um, one of our Apache volunteers, like that works with Great Plains, like was carried it in the event. And then the picture of, the, of her carrying it was taken by Carla Conrad, you know, and that all happened because myself and Mumwood, like, you know, we're connecting people and making things happen. Right. Right. So like, I mean, just think about think about all the people that are involved. And then don't forget, like the event itself was like organized Mm -hmm. by like a ton of us. Right. The whole Buffalo Rebellion crew. And then don't forget about like, you know, the hundred or so people that showed up to the event to make it, you know, an actual actual success. And um, the media and like it just there's so much that goes into this. And, you know, art, that's why I say art brings community together. So I think that's a great example. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those. I'm definitely going to walk away with those ideas. And my last question is, what is the biggest recommendation you have for others who might want to use artistic strategies to talk about climate change in agricultural communities? It doesn't have to be perfect. And working on it in community is a great way to increase visibility of it. Wonderful. And finally, before we leave, can you let listeners know how they can connect with you and your work? Yeah, uh, they can go to greatplainsaction.org and they can connect to all of our social media accounts from there. If you scroll to the bottom of the website, you can sign on to our email list. Um, If you click on our about section, there's all of our emails there to contact us. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Sakawas. It was really wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Art of Climate Dialogue, and we hope you'll listen to the rest of the series. More information about podcast interviewees is available at ecotheaterlab.com. We invite you to engage in conversation with us by leaving a comment, responding to the short feedback form in our show notes, and checking out the Ecotheater Lab's website. We want to thank all of the organizations and individuals who made this series possible. This project is funded by both a North Central Region Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program Graduate Student Grant, which is supported by the USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and a Johnson Center for Land Stewardship Policy Emerging Leader Award. Our podcast consultant is Mary Swander, our podcast musician is Omar Cook Mercado, and our podcast artist is Mosel Nita Singh. Our podcast land acknowledgement is adapted from text developed by Lance Foster and Sakawas Nobis, and from conversations with Shelley Buffalo. Rosie Marku Rowe is our podcast editor, and I'm Vivian M. Cook, Community Engagement Director for the Eco Theater Lab and the Art of Climate Dialogue, podcast producer and host. Take care.